Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles. It's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So here's a question that's plagued philosopher since Aristotle. He actually grappled with this question. What makes something funny? And for that matter, why do we laugh in the first place? Because if you take a step back, laughing is kind of weird, right? You're, you're smiling, you're making these weird noises, you're breathing heavy. What's going on there? Well, my guest today went on a worldwide tour to uncover the answers to these questions. His name is Peter McGraw. He is a behavioral scientist out of the University of Colorado. And he co-wrote a book called The Humor Code. And in it, he highlights all this research that's being done about humor, and as well as his own research that he's done on humor, what figuring out what makes things funny. And is he actually created a humor lab at the University of Colorado to figure out scientifically what makes things funny. And he highlights this all in his book. It's a really fun book. And also you get some really great insights about humor and what you can do to become funnier. So today in the podcast, we're going to discuss some of the research that Peter has uncovered. And we'll also talk about some practical tips that you can implement today to be a funnier man. So without further ado, Peter McGraw, The Humor Code. Peter McGraw, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So you are a psychologist, behavioral scientist who uh, has spent some time studying humor. How did you get involved? Like, What made you decide, I'm going to study, figure out like what makes something funny? How did that happen? Uh, well, I wish I could tell you that I had this like lifetime passion about comedy. And uh, although I, I knew that I couldn't become like a, a stand-up comic, I thought I would, I would, I would understand it from a scientific standpoint but it's it's really not that interesting a story it actually just really comes down to being asked a question in a talk in which i had no i had no answer for so i i was giving a talk at tulane university this is now eight years ago and and presented a funny story about someone engaging in immoral behavior and the audience laughed and, and someone raised their hand and said, why are we laughing at that? You just said this is immoral and that people react with anger and outrage at immoral things. And yet we're, we're experiencing positive emotion. Why, why is that the case? And I, at that point, I had been studying emotions for more than 10 years, cl- claimed to be an expert and couldn't answer that, that question. And, that, and that's set me off on this, uh, this sort of amazing ride. Um, studying humor and traveling the world and, and, and trying my hand at stand-up comedy, actually. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to get to that, your, your, your attempt 
your, your, yeah, your stand-up t- comedy experience. Um, what I was surprised in your book, The Humor Code, is that there's actually like some serious scholarship being done <laughs> about humor. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm, by serious, I mean like really serious. Um, can, can you talk about some of this research that goes on about humor? Sure, yeah. Um, it is a little bit of a, a juxtaposition, right? So to, to approach such a lighthearted topic in, in a serious way. And there, and there are serious debates. Actually, this, is, this question is an age-old question. Uh, it goes back 2,500 years to Plato and Aristotle. And frankly, people a lot smarter than me have been trying to crack the humor code since, you know, Greek philosophy. Um, so Freud wrote about it. Hobbes wrote about it. Emmanuel Kant wrote about it. You know, even, even um, humorists like Mark Twain and, and uh, Mel Brooks have written about it. Um, and so it's, it, it really is a pu- puzzling question. There's a small set of scholars in modern day. Um, they actually have their own professional society, the International Society for Humor Studies, uh, that take this this topic very seriously and 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 debate this stuff and review each other's papers and and so on. Um, the, those people, some of them are behavioral scientists like me. Some some of them are are linguists and and uh, and historians and um, philosophers and so on. It's it's actually a sort of quite diverse group of people. Um, I, I'm really an outsider. Uh, relative to those folks, but but they operate just like this, just like the physicists and the psychologists and the sociologists who are trying to explain, um, you know, hard science or soft science puzzles. Yeah, and I guess it's they're still puzzling with that that question or grappling with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I believe that if they listen to me, they could move on. Yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> they just need to read the humor code. <laughs> they said they should just read my papers. Um, and obviously, I'm exaggerating. Um, but I, I do think that there was, uh, I, I felt like when I, when I approached this, this question, I, I felt like I had one, no, that's not true. I had two advantages, um, compared to, to this, uh, to people who've tried to, to understand humor historically and, and the people who are trying to understand it in present day. So relative to the people who are trying to understand it historically, I could run experiments, Right, so so I even created a lab, a behavioral lab, called the Humor Research Lab, designed to be able to run experiments. And and experiments is what differentiates psychology from philosophy. Right, you're going from doing thought experiments to doing real experiments, and that's a huge advantage because you can actually test your ideas. <laughs> the second advantage that I had was that I was an outsider. That is that I hadn't, no one had ever sat and taught, taught me on day one of graduate school what people believed made things funny. And so I actually had 10 years to sort of try to understand emotions uh, more broadly and then got to approach this question from that perspective. And that, that has proven to be a, to be a really valuable um, advantage, I believe. So, yeah, so you didn't have to deal with the, the, the humor dogma that might exist out there. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like there's, there's like this long history of, of, I think pretty good theories, but, but they're not, they're not, they're not strong theories anymore. And, but if you, if you're taught those, it's hard to sort of unlearn them. Yeah. And so, so that was a, that was a really useful thing. I mean, in science, this happens all the time. It's not the senior most, you know, it's not the 65 year old, 
professor who's who needs to finish this puzzle right before he retires you know it's not that's not the person who has big insights it's actually the person who has enough knowledge but is still kind of fresh enough to take a a new perspective um and 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 i think that ended up being the case here gotcha so uh, let's get into uh some of your findings um before we get to the the what and how of humor First question is like, why, why does humor exist in the first place? Like, why do we laugh? Cause like, if you step back and look at it, it's kind of a weird thing, right. That we do. We just sort of just make these weird noises, gesticulations. We smile, <laughs> breathe, yeah. pant. Why do we have that? It is. Yeah. It, I mean, and so to answer that question, you have to answer sort of a, a, a broader question of like, well, why, what is like the function of humor more generally? Like not just the behavioral expression of it, laughter, but also then why is it, why does it feel so good? You know what I mean? And why is it that we, we point at certain things and say that's funny and not point at other things and, and, and say the same thing. And, and it is that actually the idea of laughter is actually one of the great hints at, at understanding what it is that makes things humorous because for instance the fact is that that you don't need language to indicate to someone else that something's funny you don't have to be able to say that's funny for someone to know that you're finding something amusing right and so um so not only do can you express this cross-culturally for instance but babies for instance can express this you know, prior to the development of language, and this is the real mind-blowing stuff, is that other mammals do the same thing, engage in this. So you don't, so this is a very primitive communication tool, and it's, it's one that we actually share uh, with mammals, most notably non-human primates like monkeys and apes and bonobos and so on. So I'll give you my quick answer to why we laugh. Sure. And it's this. It's that we're signaling to others that a potentially threatening situation is actually safe. We're signaling to others that a situation that seems wrong is actually okay. We're signaling to others that something that seemingly doesn't make sense actually makes sense. Or what we call in the humor research lab, a benign violation. Gotcha. And so this leads you, this leads into like what makes something funny, right? Or what makes a joke funny or a situation funny? It's this whole benign violation theory. Yes, that you have, that there's these two appraisals that something's wrong yet okay. And, and not only is the theory really good at, at kind of pointing to the things that are funny, it actually does a nice job of, of explaining when things are not funny, when there will be no laughter, and, uh, and that's actually a problem with a lot of the prior theorizing is that they were often very good theories that if you looked at only at funny things, they seem to have those conditions. But when you, you know, when you think about telling a joke, you know, telling a joke is not an easy thing because it's actually more likely than not you're going to fail because there's more ways to fail than there are to succeed. You can offend your audience in, is one way to fail and you can bore your audience uh, is another way to fail. And in one case, you've, you've created a situation that's just wrong. There's nothing okay about it. In the other situation, you create a situation that's not wrong enough. It's just okay. So you're constantly finding this sweet spot as a joke teller 
uh, or as a consumer of comedy, trying to find the right sitcom or rom-com or the right comedian who's able to find that, that sweet spot of wrong yet okay for, for your particular tastes. What's a, like sort of a, a very brass tacks example of a comedic, uh, something that's wrong but not wrong? Okay, so let's actually step back. Let's talk about our let's talk about our little furry friends, right? So let's talk about about um, apes and and let's well, I guess they're not that small, but let, <laughs> let's talk about apes and let's talk about rats for a moment. Yeah. Okay, uh, so they they also laugh. They, it's not it's not actually uh, laughter. It's often called play panting. Um, in the case of apes and in the case of rats, I don't even know if there is a good good term for it well, you talked about in your book they like they tickle rats like they're, they're yeah, scientists they're, like what they do is they that's what they do is they tickle rats and they get paid to do it yeah also yeah indeed um nowadays they're doing it um they're being paid by big pharma to tickle rats which is i think uh, a, a very interesting fact um the backstory on that quickly is that that Right now, the pharmaceutical solutions for, for depression are designed to kind of try to remove depression, but there aren't pharmaceutical solutions that increase happiness. And, uh, and the goal someday, you know, is to, is to have happy pills. That's Brave and New World stuff right there. It's totally Brave New World stuff. And, and to, but to do that, you need to be able to understand what actually is happiness. And so, you, so they, they use rats to, to try to, they try to look at what makes rats happy with the goal of trying to mimic that, that physiological process. And one of the things that makes rats happy is tickling them and jostling them and pl- kind of play fighting with them, uh, you know, sort of flipping them over and kind of rubbing their bellies and stuff like that, which, uh, which you or I can't do, but the people who the rats know, you know, and trust <laughs> can do. <laughs> And, and when you do, when they do that, when these scientists do that with rats, these, these rats make this sort of chirping sound. Um, it's an ultrasonic sound. You can't hear it with the human ear, but you can pick it up with a bat detector. And, uh, and this is a signal of positive emotion. And, and it goes even beyond this. This is absolutely fascinating, is that once these scientists sort of start roughhousing, playing, play fighting, tickling these rats, um, the rats will, will seek out this activity. That is, if the scientist moves his hand to the other side of the cage, the rats will chase the hand, trying to, to elicit more of this experience. And if you think about it from a rat's perspective, this, this experience is, is a benign violation, right? It's, it's threatening yet safe. Um, and what they've done with these studies is if they, if they make these sort of playful attacks not playful anymore they they get really aggressive the rats all of a sudden make a different noise they make the same noise that they make when they fight each other hmm. right you've just moved from it's the equivalent of i'm telling a joke and people are laughing and then i go too far i get too risque and then all of a sudden people are angry you get the groans you get you get yeah or or worse right people start throwing eggs at you or whatever it may be um or fire you in the case of people going too far on Twitter or, you know, yeah. or in the workplace and so on. And so same and the same is true for, for non human primates. So so um they engage in play fighting. Again, it has this element of the situation is kind of scary but safe. And so um 
so when it comes to tickling, tickling works in the same way with humans. You can't tickle yourself, no violation. And if a creepy guy in a trench coat tried to tickle you, nothing benign, right? It's only when you trust the person and it's done in a particular kind of way that, that fits that. Taking that to the world of comedy, it's, now it's just, it's not physical threats anymore, but it's absurdities, it's uh, logic violations, it's violations of cultural norms, violations of social norms, right? When you think about it, comedy plays on things that are wrong. You don't have comedians who get up and say, oh, what a beautiful day. I saw the best rainbow. You know, like they're, what they're doing is they're talking about bad traffic and, and airline food and, um, you know, dumb people and so on and so forth, right? So, so there are plenty of violations there. It's just how do you find a way to not go too far, right? To, to tell a joke about race that, that offends yeah. Well, that's, a, I mean, that's where it raises a question. Like, how do you know, like, how do you figure that out? Uh, because on, it's kind of weird on an abstract level, like you're, they're just words, right? So there's really no, like, you know, if someone says like a really offensive joke, there's nothing physically happening to you uh, on a primal level, I guess. But yet we still, there is a violation with words. Um, there's a right and wrong. Yeah. So yes. I mean, how, how, how does that line drawn? Uh, it, has it changed over time? Uh, what, what goes on there? Yeah, so what, what you're highlighting is um, is what makes my job as a scientist very difficult and what makes the job of the, the wannabe funny person very difficult. So, so you could do what comics do, which is uh, use some combination of instinct um, and, you know, experience and, uh, and actually testing empirical testing to figure out what's going to be funny and not. So, so if you ever go to a comedy club, so when you see Louis CK do an hour special, uh, it just seems like the man is just, um, naturally the most funny person that you, you know, among the most funny people in the world. What you don't see is that for the previous 364 days, Louis has been honing that material, trying that this joke night in and night out and, and tweaking it here and there and seeing what gets bigger or lesser laughs with it and throwing out material that doesn't work and keeping all the best stuff. So, he, so he's a very funny guy to begin with. He's got great instincts. But what he does is he writes hundreds of jokes and usually only one of a hundred make it. And he just has to figure out which are the ones that are going to make it. And he does it through a very rigorous even in many ways, like unromantic testing process, which is going to little, you know, little clubs and, and trying these kinds of things out. What, what I think is interesting is, is a theory may help cut that learning curve because the, the theory starts to explain a whole bunch of things, right? It explains why one person's laughing, another person's bored, and another person's offended because they're each of those people see the world in a different way. They're threatened to, varying, to, to differing degrees um, by you pointing out what might be wrong with the world, with yourself, with them, with politics, and so on. And so there are some, I think, hints at, at ways that you might be able to try to uh, find the kinds of topics that are more universally going to be accepted rather than... Um, 
uh, how do I say this? Rather than just saying, like, I'm just going to put this up out there, scattershot, and see what ends up working. Yeah, that gets people into trouble. Like, as you said, like on Twitter or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, nowadays, this is a big problem. Is it for the comedy clubs used to be a very, like, were, were always kind of a safe place. That is, that people were going, they knew that there was some risk involved. Um, and that a joke that would be told that bombed, right? You know, an, a, a comic trying a new joke about a risque topic, uh, and that joke doesn't go over well, he or she just moves on to the next joke. No big deal. People are momentarily upset, and, and a good comic can bring, bring the audience back. But now with Twitter, with YouTube, uh, is that some, it just takes someone recording that joke or tweeting about that joke or writing a blog about that joke that then it can become uh, known to, to not only um, uh, the people in that city, but, but the people all over the world, right? And that joke wasn't necessarily meant for a broad audience, and it wasn't necessarily meant for... Um, it's being taken out of context and, and all these kinds of things. And so it, it, it makes this world a little bit more difficult for the, for the average stand-up. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom, made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom, made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and it helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money and things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. Are, are there are the comedians like doing anything to counteract that? Like, like banning cell phones or things you like do that? Get, yeah, you do get comedians who sort of yell at audience members for, for, um, you know, for videotaping their bits. Uh, that's certainly the case. You know, one thing that has happened that's really fascinating, I don't know if, you, if you've heard this, but, but a number of high-profile comedians have stopped uh, performing on college campuses. Yeah. Yeah, the whole and, trigger warning stuff for yeah, because there's just like there's a there's the notion that like there's enough sensitivity. Some people call it sensitivity. Some people call it you know knowledge of uh, um, of hegemony that uh, that a lot of things that would normally be f- funny for a a, a beer drinking Friday night um, you know comedy club crowd doesn't doesn't work to a broad audience and, and sometimes a very diverse audience on a college campus. Hmm. So uh, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, okay, we have this theory that can possibly work as a shortcut to perhaps, out. Yeah. perhaps. I right. have no data on that. Okay. Unfortunately, but uh, I, I do believe that to be the case. Okay. But, but you mentioned like, you know, Louis CK has like good instincts, which, uh, you know, I hear that's like, because is, is there something with, you know, genetically or something that Louis CK that makes him, more sensitive to figuring out those that benign theory when it crossed. I mean, is, are some people? I'm basically the question is: Are some people born funny? Yeah. So, so I think that in the same way that some people are born fast, there are some people born funny. There are some people born cheerful. There are some people who who are you know are born with a better sense of rhythm. That we're not all created equal. Um, when it comes to a sense of humor, uh, especially ability to pr- to um, to produce this humorous response in others, but I also, but I believe that that um, I believe that to that's actually not a handicap. Gotcha. That that you can become funnier in the same way that you can become faster in the same way that you can become a better dancer in the same way that you can um, you can learn to play piano. You know, like that that. 
almost that you become a better public speaker, that you can overcome your shyness, um, that there are a lot of things that we might have a predisposition towards, but with practice, with coaching, with feedback, you can, you, you can improve. Gotcha. So, um, so for instance, Louis CK, if you watch his old stuff, I don't mean to pick on Louis C.K. I mean, I actually think he's, he's a really good comic. He doesn't like the benign violation theory, so I often like to use him as an example <laughs> of, uh, of how it fits so well. <laughs> if, you, if you look at old Louis C.K. stuff, you can, see the, you can see flashes of his brilliance. But, uh, you know, he was 30, you know, he was 30, 32 years old, and he was a middling comic. Yeah. You know, he was struggling to make it happen. And what happened was he, he, made, he dedicated himself to, a, to the craft in such a way where he started really challenging himself and really take, trying to take things to the next level. And that's when his, when his career really took off. If, if people were born with a sense of humor, we would have these, like, brilliant, hilarious 22-year-old stand-ups. Yeah. And that, that just doesn't happen because you, you need to work hard to get good at it. Um, Louis has a Louis has a pedophile joke that he I think he almost gave up on it because he knew that it, he knew that it had the the bones to be funny but he couldn't make he couldn't make it work and he, until he sort of he just kept tweaking it tweaking it tweaking it, and then he found the, like the magic phrase so he he gave he talked about this to Howard Stern um, so the joke. The joke's about like what is the what's the most horrendous crime that someone could commit? It's, um, it's in his opinion, it's not murder. It's it's pedophilia. It's to molest a child, and it's, it's so bad that these these pedophiles are like at risk in prison and and so on, and uh, and as a consequence, sometimes they they kill their victims, right? So here you know here we are like this is this is we're in big time violation territory. All of these topics get an audience aroused in a negative way, you know, but he hasn't said anything controversial at this point. And so what he does is he, he follows this logical chain and he's like, well, if we want to actually keep, keep kids safer, um, keep them from being, being murdered, we should, we should start taking it a little easier on pedophiles. Oh boy. That, that, that is his logic here. And, and your oh boy comment is, is exactly what, um, how audiences would, would generally respond. And what he ended up finding that he had to do was he had to create a caveat before he followed this logical chain with this joke. Of course, as you might know, I'm not doing this joke justice. For the, your listeners, they can probably e- easily Google it and see what, what, how he executes this. But he said that he had to add a little caveat that just said, I don't know what to do with this information but, and then he would follow the logical chain. So he then went from someone who was prescribing, telling people how to behave, to someone who was describing the quote-unquote objective facts of this peculiar puzzle. And then when he started doing that, then that joke started getting laughs. Interesting. Interesting. That's, so it's a fine line. Super is like razor sharp. It's razor, razor sharp, and, and it's razor sharp in part because that it's the jokes that have that that play on the biggest violations, on the things that are most wrong, are are the ones that get the biggest laughs, typically. Now, you did ask about like you know, are you born funny or not? I can tell you what the predictor. The, I, I can tell you the best predictor 
of um, of a sense of humor, especially in terms of production. It's just simply intelligence. Is just being quick witted, and knowing about the world. But when it comes to uh, humor consumption, that is like tendency to laugh and not that that actually is just sort of like cheerfulness just like having court sort of a sunny disposition like going through life not feeling you know like the walls are closing in and like things are bad you know sort of having a little bit of like uh, a, a being a little bit more cheerful is just the is sort of the the best predictor on the opposite side and what's interesting is production and consumption are tend to be uncorrelated if you laugh easily, doesn't necessarily mean that you're funny. If you're funny to other people, doesn't necessarily mean that you laugh easily. Gotcha. But so this idea that um, intelligence is what predicts uh, humor or a sense of or being able to produce humor is that why uh, women find men with a sense of humor attractive? Like it's a signal, a sexual signal for intelligence. Yeah. So uh, so. One of the things that we did with the humor code was try to understand this question of, of like, are men, if you ask the average person, you say, who's going to be funnier, a man or a woman? If you find, if someone has a preference, they'll usually say men. Yeah. Chris Hitchens said that, like, women can't be funny, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Chris was wrong. Um, okay. Well, yeah. To uh, the face, hilarious. There's a lot of. Yeah. Well, so, so if you use the professional comedy ranks as your, uh, as, as your proof, then, then, and then you come to the, all these wild conclusions, right? Like, so does does anybody believe that men make better doctors or better lawyers than women? Uh, I don't think so. But but the logic would be, well, there's more male doctors than female doctors. Hence, it must be true. There, the world of comedy is not very welcoming to women. Um, there's not there's not as many mentors. The clubs are run by men. There's still a lot of institutional sexism um, that exists there, and it's just not. So, so fewer women just try to do it from the very get-go. But when it comes to, to just regular everyday people, not the pros, um, men and women tend to be more alike than different. There is one finding that does stand out, and it's within a dating situation. There's a tendency for men to try more and women to assess more. And the belief is, the theory is that, that um, not only does a sense of humor suggest the two people are compatible but it but your ability to be funny may suggest other valued characteristics as you said intelligence so if you want to try to figure out is a guy smart or not if he's able to make you laugh it's more likely that he is smart than not smart in that in that kind of way and so so the evolutionary psychologists of the world hone in on that on that finding as saying that it's a kind of sexual selection technique. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so let's talk about uh, your experience. So you, you went on this whirlwind tour around the world trying to figure out what is what makes something funny. And then the, the culmination of this is that you actually went up on stage and did a stand-up routine, um, putting into practice all these, the, these theories you were able to come, um, come up with based on your research. How did that experience go of creating a stand-up routine based on science? Uh, so, well, so you have to understand that I, that it was my second time on stage. Okay. Because uh, my first time on stage was a total disaster. 
uh, I went, I actually got up on stage in, in Denver, Colorado and did, uh, at the Squire lounge and did an open mic night and totally bombed. Um, I got one laugh and it wasn't even an intentional laugh. <laughs> and, and, uh, when I, when I looked at the, when I looked at the jokes I was telling from a benign violation perspective, they were too benign. Um, they might've been funny to my friends at a dinner party, but they weren't funny to, to the wannabe comedians and the dirtbag hipsters, you know, at this, uh, <laughs> this dive bar. Um, and, and, uh, my author Joel Warner was there in the audience and, and that actually really served as the foundation to, to travel to all these places, to go to the Amazon, to go to Tanzania, to go to Japan, to go to Scandinavia and so on. And, and Joel only agreed to do this trip if I agreed to get back on stage and to, uh, to prove we've learned something along the way. And, uh, and, and we, we went to the Just for Last Festival, the world's largest comedy festival, and, and performed on, at one of the shows. And, uh, and it went better. It went much, much better. Um, and it went better in a large part because I, what we did was we basically talked through all the different things that, that could help make something be funny. So, so we, we just pointed out all the kind of like weird things that we found on the, on the, during the travels, right? So when I got up on stage, I talked about these, these travels and I talked about the peculiarities of the people and the places that we, that we saw. And, um, and as a result, like I, I just played in a world of things being wrong much more so than a world, than a world that, the, in which things were sort of okay. Uh, so, for instance, I told a joke about how in, in Osaka, Japan, which is, is the, it's the comedy capital of, J- of Japan, you can walk up to a regular everyday person on the street and, and like make your fingers into a gun and point it at them and go, bam. And those, uh, those people will act like they've been shot. It's like this <laughs> unstated joke that everybody in the city knows. It's, it's bizarre. And so then the, the joke was like, so I made that observation and then I said, um, you know, my plan is to use it to rob banks in the city <laughs> next, you know, and so, uh, you know, these are not the world's funniest jokes, but they're, you know, they're not bad for a professor who studies what makes things funny rather than, uh, for a professor who's, who's truly a comedian at heart. Gotcha. So you, you didn't get booed off the stage. You got some laughs. I got some laughs. It, it went all right. Yeah. It actually really went all right. Now, I mean, if I had been if I had really gone after this, I, that, that event would have been, I would have done 30, you know, uh, dive bars prior to that to get things, uh, really, really honed in. Instead, you know, I tried to make it a little bit more of an experiment and to use the kind of things, you know, I started the, I started the set with self-deprecation. So I made a joke about myself. Um, that's something that, you know, when you, when you, I, I, you know, I wear, I sometimes wear a sweater vest. I made, I made a joke about my sweater vest. And, uh, when you, when you make fun of yourself, that almost by, by nate, by the nature of it all is a benign violation. You're yeah. pointing out something wrong with yourself, but it's about yourself. And so that, that very easily gets a laugh and sort of warms up the audience. And then it gives you, it gives you more license to point out what's wrong with everyone else. Like the, 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 weird behavior in Osaka, Japan, for instance. Yeah. When does like self-deprecation go too far? Because I know there's a lot of people who use that as their shtick, but then you just like, it's like, they reach to the point where you're just like, man, it's not funny you're, anymore. You're, yeah. You're just a loser. Yeah. Right? Like that at some point. And I think that the point, I think what it is, is that, so good comedians, they use it 
and then they move on, right? It's a, it's a quick hit and then they move on. Um, I think what the risk of using self-deprecation is when, um, when it's, it, it's becomes constant, right? It's like the person is always going back to it, always going back to it. And then it starts to make not, not only you think of the person in a negative way, cause you, you know, you, part of the point of being funny is that it's, it's well liked, yeah. you know, that, that it, it enhances people's assessment of you. Um, if you, if you use self-deprecation too much, people might actually start go, start to believe the negative things that you're pointing out and, um, and start to get really uncomfortable about it. Cause now you're just worried that you're, you're just interacting with someone who has really low self-esteem. Yeah. Well, Peter, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Um, but before we go, I always like to end these, these podcasts with a, sort of like a quick practical tip takeaway. I mean, the, for the guys who are listening to this right now, um, some of them probably are, they, they're probably natural comedians, but for those guys out there who aren't, they want to be a little funnier. What's one thing they can do starting today to, uh, increase their humor a bit? Okay. So I, I think this is a, this is a straightforward prescription and that is that you have to try. So you have to start to seek out situations where you try to be funny and then you assess what works and what doesn't work. And when you fail, be quick to apologize. Don't be defensive. Oh, it was only a joke. You know, yeah. you know don't blame the victim. Just be like, ah, I was trying to be funny. Sorry about that. Store those, those failures away. Store the successes away. And you can start to figure out. In the same way that if you want to become a good free throw shooter, you got to practice free throws. If you want to become a funnier storyteller, you got to practice telling funny stories. Awesome. Well, Peter McGraw, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Our guest today was Peter McGraw. He's the author of the book, The Humor Code. You can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about Peter's work at PeterMcGraw.org. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this show, you feel like you're getting something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That would help us get some feedback on how we can improve the show, as well as get the word out about the podcast. So until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.